All right, so we continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount, and we come to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 to 6 this morning. So while you're turning there or pulling that up on your um, electronic device, I want you to think about the fact that God has his critics. And actually, confession here, I'm one of them. So it's, it's maybe not what you think. I'm not a skeptic or a cynic. Um, I don't get any kicks out of putting God in the dock and cross-examining him, you know, about his management of the universe. What I mean is that God has, for his children, a lot of folks who tend to be pretty critical. Our world is certainly haunted by critical Spirits, lots of them. That shouldn't necessarily surprise us, but the unfortunate thing is that the church is also haunted by critical spirits. And again, maybe that shouldn't surprise us, but we can't accept it. We certainly shouldn't deny it, but we can't accept it. It's not okay. Jesus doesn't, and he's here to help us with our critical spirits this morning. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. And first point is, do not be judgmental or you will be judged. So look at verse 1 there. Judge not, Jesus says, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So this judge not lest you be judged is probably one of the most oft-quoted Bible verses. Um, but certainly it's also a Bible verse that is oftentimes misunderstood and misused. So what does this mean? What does Jesus mean here? Let's begin first with what it does not mean. Jesus is not telling us to check our brains at the door. He's not calling us to turn a blind eye to evil or to sin. He's not encouraging us to make no judgments, to never be constructively critical, to never confront your brother or sister over a pattern of sin in their life. He's not calling you as a parent to never correct your child, um, for us to never, you know, correct an employee that's, you know, doing things wrong, to never make a judgment about a political viewpoint that we disagree with or a theological position that's not, you know, faithful to Scripture. So, I mean, I once read a story about a serial killer. It turned out this man was a serial killer who was in some sort of volunteer leadership position at his Episcopal church the whole time he was killing people. And his priest was then quoted after all this came out as saying, I don't try to understand him because then I would be tempted to judge him. I said, what? Is that what Jesus is talking about here? Like, what if there is abuse in a home or abusive leadership in a church or unethical practices or financial fraud in your company? Or malpractice by a physician. Does that mean, well, you know, we shouldn't be judgmental. We shouldn't judge. So Jesus does not mean that we should never make a judgment. I mean, otherwise, he's being a hypocrite 
and where he goes a little bit later. Look down at verse 6. We'll look at it later this morning. In verse 6, he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So you need to be able to make a judgment as to who is a dog and who is a pig. Otherwise, you won't know how to apply this, right? Or go a little bit further down in chapter 7 to verses 15 and 16, and Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So we have to be able to observe certain fruits and be able to make a judgment as to what that means for who that person is. Oh, that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. So I need to be on guard. And we need to guard the flock. So that's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that we should never make judgments. What Jesus is saying is that we should not be judgmental. His disciples must not have critical spirits. Doesn't mean that we are never critical, constructively critical, but we shouldn't have a critical spirit. We shouldn't be fault finders and nitpicks. So judge not that you be not judged. And we can see this is what Jesus is talking about because of the way that he unpacks it. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So how do you want to be judged? Do you want God to be hypercritical and a nitpicky fault finder when it comes to your case? Do you want him to maximize justice and minimize mercy? Do you want him to be like a vindictive prosecuting attorney with a chip on his shoulder attempting to get the maximum sentence for you? No. Then we ought not to relate to others that way. So those who are harsh and merciless in their judging will be judged without mercy. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said it like this in James 2, 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But then he says, thankfully, mercy triumphs over judgment. It's supposed to. It does God with his children. So if you understand that mercy has triumphed over the judgment you deserve, then we can then extend that mercy to others. So Jesus is giving a very serious warning here. I mean, think of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. So he told the parable because there were some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on others with contempt. The Pharisees were doing that. So he said, you know, there's this Pharisee and he is in the temple and he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. You know, I do this and this. I fast and give and I'm glad I'm not like that tax collector over there. 
And the tax collector understood his need of mercy and he couldn't even look up to heaven. He's beating his breast and he's saying, God have mercy on me, the sinner. And then Jesus says, who went home justified? Right with God. It was not the Pharisee. It was that tax collector who knew he needed mercy. So basically what's happening here is Jesus is judging judgmentalism, which would be really ironic, right, if you took this to mean that we can never judge or disagree with or be critical of anyone or anything. I mean, if so, then Jesus is a hypocrite and has violated his own principle. But obviously that's not the case. He's saying don't, he's not saying you can't make any judgments. He's saying we must not be, my followers must not be judgmental. John Stott said it like this, said it well. The censorious critic, someone who's always censuring everyone, the censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives and is ungenerous toward their mistakes. To be censorious is to presume arrogantly to anticipate the day of judgment as if you know how it's all going to turn out. To usurp the prerogative of the divine judge, in fact, to try to play God. And the Bible has so much to say about this. <laughs> Let me just mention a few things. Even, even just in the immediate context here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already struck this theme. In Matthew 5, 7, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then a little bit later, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, after he teaches his disciples to pray, he says in verses 14 and 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Apostle Paul makes, strikes this theme as well. Really important passage in Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions, disputable matters. Okay, there's, you know, we're not talking about, is Jesus really God? Are we saved by, you know, grace through faith in Christ? The cardinal doctrines, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about kind of third-level issues, disputable matters. Like, you know, where you send your kids to school or... Um, you know, can, can we drink alcohol or not? Or, you know, there's just like these third level issues. There's plenty of things. Can we trick or treat, you know, at Halloween? Um, what do you wear to church on Sunday? Like, the, uh, people can get so nitpicky and critical on stuff like that. And it's like Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Don't quarrel about opinions. Who are you to pass judgment? Verse 4 in Romans 14. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Then down in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or do you, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Leave the judgment to God on these things. 
So making judgments is not inherently wrong. It's essential in many ways, in many contexts in the Christian life. But being judgmental is inherently wrong. Even if the judgment must be rendered, if we do it in a manner that is ugly and unmerciful, that's also wrong. So you actually can make a judgment without being judgmental in your manner and attitude. So don't be judgmental, Jesus says here, or you will be judged. Do not judge without mercy, or you will be judged without mercy. And who wants that? Again, how do you want God to deal with you? How do you want God to judge you? Do you want mercy? <laughs> I mean, if any of us thinks that we can stand before God not needing his mercy, then we are completely blind in our self-righteousness. But I think we do know that we need mercy. So this is not, you know, a call to wink at sin, check your critical faculties at the door, each morning. It's a call to exercise the same mercy and grace that has been exercised toward you by God through Christ. God has not treated us as our sins deserve, like Psalm 103 makes so clear. So this is a call to forsake our inclination to play God, to be the judge, and instead to be inclined to imitate God in his merciful disposition toward us and his patience and his forbearance. So if we as disciples of Jesus, citizens of his kingdom, are going to be mercy-loving people, spring-loaded to be merciful and forbearing and gracious and patient and quick to give the benefit of the doubt and slow to label and condemn, then we are going to need to remember and soak in and savor the mercy of God. So before we go further in Matthew 7, let's just pause here for a minute and remember who it is who's speaking to us here. Our judge is so merciful. So this is point number two, which is a little bit of a hiatus, almost like pulling out from Matthew 7 and saying, wait, let's just look at the full scope of God's revelation and who are we dealing with here? Who is your judge? Who is God? So way back in Exodus 33, Moses pleads with God, show me your glory. I want to know you. I want to see you. God says, you can't see me and live. I'm holy. You're not. You'd be toast. I'm so beautiful, it would, it would tear you apart. But I'm going to hide you in this rock and I'm going to pass by and you can kind of see the after effects and I'm going to proclaim my name. His name is who he is. It's his glory. What does he say? Exodus 34, 6 to 7. The Lord, Yahweh, passes before Moses and proclaims Yahweh, Yahweh, the self-existent one. The one that revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And he doesn't need to burn the bush because he runs on himself. <laughs> he doesn't need fuel. So Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is quoted in Psalm 103. 
This is what he's like. We need to remember that and not forget it. So this is who God is. We need to let that sink in. I wonder, and I'd encourage you to think about this, how much of our hypercritical judgmentalism is a horizontal reflex or symptom or outworking of our sense that God is hypercritical and exacting and harsh with you, with me. If we believe that, even if it's subconscious and, oh no, I know the right answers, but if I really think that God is just tapping his toe, leaning back, and I'm on trial, then I'm going to operate that way with other people. But no, Psalm 103 is who God is. Exodus 34 is who God is. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that such good news? That that's who we're dealing with. Our judge is so merciful. It's really good news because we need it. Because Romans 3, no one is righteous. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God naturally. All of sin fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, each and every one of us, to our own way. Psalm 103.3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? None of us. No one could. This illustration by Francis Schaeffer, I think, is helpful. He says, if every little baby that was ever born anywhere in the world had a tape recorder. <laughs> okay, he was living a while ago. Um, so yeah, tape recorders. Okay, some recording device, if you don't know what a tape recorder is. So, had a tape recorder hung about its neck, and if this tape recorder only recorded the moral judgments with which this child, as he grew, bound other men, other people, the moral precepts might be much lower than the biblical law, but they would still be moral judgments. Eventually, each person comes to that great moment when he stands before God as judge. Suppose then that God simply touched the tape recorder button and each man heard played out in his own words all those statements by which he had bound other men in moral judgment. He could hear it going on for years. Thousands and thousands of moral judgments made against other men. Not aesthetic judgments, but moral judgments. Then God would simply say to the man, though he had never heard the Bible, now where do you stand in the light of your own moral judgments? The Bible points out that every voice would be stilled. All men would have to acknowledge that they have deliberately done those things which they knew to be wrong. Nobody could deny it. God is completely just. A man is judged and found wanting on the same basis on which he has tried to bind others. We need mercy. And hallelujah, God is rich in mercy. 
Aren't you glad that our judge is merciful, that this is who we're dealing with? Psalm 103, or Psalm 130, verse 3, continues into verse 4. So if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And then verse 4 says, but with you there is forgiveness. <sighs> yes! Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But it continues and says, And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, in our place, the iniquity of us all. So he has dealt incredibly mercifully with us. Ephesians 2, 4, But God, we're dead in our sins, slaves of our sin, selfishness and pride, and on and on. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us to al alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So if you are trusting in Jesus today, it's because God has had amazing mercy on you because he is rich in mercy. So this is the context in which we've got to read and hear these questions. This, do not judge, lest you be judged. And then the questions that follow in verse 3. Sermon on the Mount is not filled with entrance requirements. Well, you need to do this and this and this and make sure you judge not, lest you be judged. And then maybe at the end you can get in. Maybe I'll let you in if you, if, if you do it all well enough. You can kind of like hit my bar. These are not entrance requirements for the kingdom of God. They are ethics of the kingdom of God. You enter the kingdom of God by his rich mercy, by grace that is ours in Christ, trusting in Jesus, turning from our sin, our pathetic attempts to try to, you know, establish our own righteousness, be good enough, no, it's all filthy rags. We can't save ourselves. We can't atone for our sins. And you trust in Jesus who died for our sins so that God could be mercifully just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So you can repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, experience that mercy, even if you joined in with us and you weren't a Christian, you can end this live stream as a Christian this morning. So we can't establish our own righteousness. We need the mercy of God. And when we receive that mercy, it ought to then change the way we view the world, the way we view others. It should and it must. And so that's what Jesus goes on to say. He points out our spiritual blindness. Because even though we can know this mercy, we can forget we can start to operate as if we live in a meritocracy and we, you know, this caste system, try to find the moral high ground and look down on others. So we need to have our eyes open to our spiritual blindness. And Jesus asked some questions to open our eyes. Look at verse 3, point number 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? So this is a really serious passage. Jesus is making a serious point. But he's also telling a joke. He is making his audience laugh. You know? I 
see that speck in your eye, you know? Like, you should be laughing. Like, huh, what? Are, that's crazy. Yeah, you should be laughing. But it's one of those jokes that, you know, you're laughing and then, ooh, you get quiet pretty quickly. Why? Why? Why do I see the speck in my brother's eye and I, I don't notice the log in my own? Like, why does this phenomenon even happen? Why? What is going on in me, in my mind, in my heart for this to happen? Because it happens. Why this blindness? We see the sins of others so clearly, at least we think we do. And yet we're so often blind to our own sin. We don't even acknowledge it at times or we minimize it. We see theirs as serious and maybe they're not taking it seriously. And we see ours as minor. We're quick to view the sins of others as felonies and look at ours as misdemeanors. We can be harsh and strict in our judgment of others, and soft and lax with ourselves. We want people to be patient with us, and yet how often are we impatient with others? We want people to be understanding of us, and yet we're oftentimes cold and harsh with others. We know that we, I know I am, slow and intermittent in my growth and progress, you know, following Jesus, becoming more like him. You know, don't we know that it's like one step forward, two back, two forward, one back. It's, it's like this, you know, it's not like this. We want other people to understand that change is gradual and, you know, not without its setbacks. You know, we're gracious in understanding of ourselves, but not so much with others. We get exasperated that others don't grow in a consistent upward trend. So, do you see, if we want that kind of understanding and patience for ourselves, we should not be slow to grant it to others. So, E.J. Carnell was a professor and was the president of Fuller Theological Seminary back in the 50s. In his inaugural address in 1955, he said this, Whoever meditates on the mystery of his own life will quickly realize why only God, the searcher of the secrets of the heart, can pass final judgment. We cannot judge what we have no access to. The self is a swirling conflict of fears, impulses, sentiments, interests, allergies, and foibles. It is a metaphysical given for which there is no easy rational explanation. Now, if we cannot unveil the mystery of our own motives and affections, how much less can we unveil the mystery in others? As if, like, presume to know. That is, as we look into ourselves, we encounter the mystery of our own, the depths of our own selfhood. As we th sing things like, just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within and fears without, O Lamb of God, I come. And having recognized the mysteries that dwell in the very depths of our own being, how can we treat other people as if they were empty or superficial beings without the same kind of mystery? It's a good word. 
We should check ourselves. We should be slow to make those judgments. We should not presume to know the motives and the machinations of someone else's soul. We don't know the whole story. So listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Paul wrote, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Like, we can leave it to God's judgment. He's going to take care of all the details. And he's going to do it with perfect justice because he's the only one that knows all of the story for everyone. So that is true. That does not mean that Jesus is saying turning a blind, turn a blind eye to evil. He's not talking about sweeping sin under the rug and, you know, living in denial. This is not a license to stick your head in the sand. He's not giving warrant for us to enable people who over and over again, liars and abusers and users and manipulators. He is talking about tendency, our tendency to minimize our own sin, be blind to it, justify it, downplay it, and our tendency to focus on the speck, the sins of others, and offer our services. Oh, here, let me help you to them. So when you have a log in your eye, it betrays spiritual blindness. And when you try to help someone with their speck, you know, with this big old log— it betrays a kind of tone deafness to the voice of Jesus, to the truth of Scripture. So point number four, spiritual deafness. Look at verse four. Again, these questions are so good. They are so rhetorically rich and probing, and we need to slow down and listen and think about what Jesus is asking us. He's shining the light in our hearts here. So he says, how can you say— to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. When there is a log in your own eye. How, how could you say that? Why would you say that? That's a really good question because we do, we do this. We try to do this. We need to slow down and let this question sink in. Like, what? That's dangerous. <laughs> like, if I try to, you know, like, Get, I'm going to whack them in the head, you know? Like, oh, wait, wait, oh, you, you too. Bam! Like, it's comical. If it weren't so, <laughs> so true. So how can you and I, how can we attempt to remove the speck when our sight is impaired? You see, you hear how hypocritical that is. Which is why Jesus in verse 5 says, you hypocrite. When we are, hear this, when we are hypercritical, we are acting hypocritically. Hypercriticism is hypocritical. We are all too quick to kind of self-appoint as the local spec inspector. We all have sin. Our problem is blindness to our own sin. We need to see it. We need to own it. We need to repent of it. Then we can be of help to other people. Not only will we be able to see clearly when we repent and like, oh man, I got to look in first. I shouldn't be pointing the finger first. I should be looking in first. Then 
I can be helpful to somebody else. Then I can see clearly. And also, looking in first is going to change my disposition when I go to help that other sinner. I'm not going to come from my perch, my moral high ground, you know, like, here, let me help you, pathetic little sinner, with your... No, I am a needy sinner in need of mercy. I just took this big log out of my eye. I don't have any stones to throw at you as I come to help you with that speck in yours. Jonathan Edwards wrote those resolutions, famous resolutions. Uh, I think there were 70 of them. I've always loved number eight. It goes like this. Resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. What if we all adopted that posture, that disposition? It sounds like the fighter verse for this week that's for reciting today. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is, I'm sorry, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Paul the Apostle, present tense, I am. I'm the worst sinner I know because <laughs> I know my heart. I, I can't know those other people's hearts, but I know my heart and I'm the worst sinner I know. So I'm so glad that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners because here's, you know, exhibit A. So what do we do now? We'll look at the rest of verse 5. Log first, point number 5, then speck. And always in that order. Verse 5, you hypocrite. Jesus loves hypocrites. <laughs> He's not saying, you hypocrites, get out of here. You know, we won't have anything to do with you. No, he's mercifully coming and, and teaching us hypocrites. Come on, follow me. <laughs> you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So if you are judgmental, notice it's really a hypocrisy problem. Judgmentalism is the fruit. Hypocrisy is the root. A critical spirit is the symptom. Hypocrisy is the virus. We need to repent of our hypocrisy. Take the plank, the log out of our own eye. Deal with our hypocrisy. I'm a sinner. I've got all kinds of sin. I need to look in first. I'm not God's appointed judge for the world. I'm not the local speck inspector. I need to deal first with my hypocrisy, with my sin. Be honest with myself. Get real with God, with Jesus. Oh, and repent which is always the pathway to freedom. It's the pathway, it turns on the flow of grace. Jesus, right before the Sermon on the Mount, after his baptism, and as he starts his earthly ministry, what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we need to change. 
And this is good change. It brings about freedom, and it helps us love others well. So Jesus doesn't stop here. He doesn't just say, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. The point is not that we would mind our own business for the rest of our lives. That's not the end game. Jesus goes on to say, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is a loving thing. And we need to get in a position to be able to do it without making a mockery of the whole thing. We need to get into a position to be able to love people well. So big picture, you and I, we need mercy. And we want mercy, right? We know we need it. And God has given it to us richly in Christ. Now give that mercy. And when you point out a speck, you do it humbly and in a gracious, merciful way. You needed help to see your sin. So when you've dealt honestly and humbly with God, you can help others see their need of mercy and experience God's mercy in the removal of that speck. Now, one more verse. We haven't gotten to verse 6 yet. Think, man, what does this have to do with this? Pigs and dogs and what? Like, interesting verse here that Jesus gives us to close out this section. And if you're, you might be wondering, why is this here? What, is it, what does it mean? How does it relate to what goes before and after? It's actually a qualification of what he's just said in verses 1 to 5. 1 to 5 is not intended to make Jesus' followers naive. It's intended to make them merciful. But that does not mean that we don't also need to be discerning. So, last point here, dogs and pigs. Verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. All right, what's Jesus talking about here? Well, first off, make sure you're not thinking of your cuddly little rover and Wilbur from Charlotte's Web, okay? That is not what is in view here. We are talking about pariah dogs that are nasty. You got to think like hyena, okay? Something like that. And you've got to think of some nasty, like feral, warthog sort of pig thing that could like kill you and eat you. Nasty, dangerous, unclean creatures. So 7, 1 to 5 doesn't mean we don't make any judgments. Just indiscriminately give all grace and, and truth and treasures to everyone all the same all the time without any discrimination. That's not what Jesus is saying. Some people will use a Christian's humility and honesty, log-removing humility, honesty about their sin. They're going to take your log from the foot of the cross and beat you with it. They can't see their own log. They don't care for anyone to help them see it. Not even Jesus. There is such a thing as a dog and a pig in spiritual terms. The Bible also calls them scoffers. So Proverbs 9, 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Spurgeon summarized it like this. He says, We are not judges, but we also must not be simpletons. So love does believe all things. We want to think the best of people. We should be very slow to ever think this is the case with someone. 
enemies of the gospel. All of us are naturally. Many people, you know, kick against and persecute Christians and push back, and then God saves them. But there is a kind of hardened response. There are cases when people get so hostile and hard and antagonistic toward the gospel that you need to shake off the dust from your feet and move on. We are to bear with one another in love, but that doesn't mean that we're never to speak hard truths and ultimately sometimes, again, move on. So Jesus did it with the Pharisees. He said in Matthew 15, let them alone to his disciples. They are blind guides. He told his disciples to do it when he sent them out. He said, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Paul did it. Acts 18. These people opposed him, reviled him. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He tried. He lovingly tried. He wasn't trying to pick a fight to be just argumentative. He wasn't, you know, throwing stones as he left town. He was brokenhearted, but he was clear, and he had to shake the dust off his feet and move on. This is certainly the exception and not the rule. I think we should be, we should tremble to ever kind of take this posture towards someone because we don't want to give up too quickly. We don't want to write somebody off too quickly. But there are instances where this is the posture we have to take and we need to move on. Now, a little bit of closing application here. Ask yourself. Just take some time. Lord, help me be honest with myself. Help me to know what's going on in my own heart, my own mind. Is I know I'm prone to a critical spirit. Think about when you are, with whom you oftentimes are critical, hypercritical. What's going on underneath there? Is it insecurity? Is it jealousy? Is it guilt? Sometimes we are guilty, and rather than repenting and dealing honestly with our sin before God, we try to shift the spotlight onto somebody else's sin And that also helps us feel a little bit higher on the ladder of righteousness and them a little lower. So we feel a little bit better about ourselves and our guilt. But that's not how you respond like a Christian to your guilt. That's a self-righteousness project. Sometimes it can be self-pity. Which is really wounded pride. And you look at what you've been dealt, and you look around and you criticize the people who have it better than you because they don't deserve it. But you do in your mind. Now, I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what God is shining the light on, but what does the gospel, the mercy of God in Christ, have to say to those heart-level dynamics underneath the critical spirit. Does Jesus want you to be secure in his love, to know who you are, that you don't have to prove yourself or have to get a leg up on other people? Yes. (laughs) Romans 8, nothing can separate you from his love. He loves you. 
You can be secure in that. You can know who you are. And you can see how that humility and security will then help us be gracious, patient, merciful with others. Is it jealousy? Well, what has God done for us? Can we be satisfied in Jesus? He's the bread of life. He's the living water. He, whoever comes to me will never ever hunger. Whoever believes in me will never ever thirst. Come. Let me satisfy your soul. If it's guilt and you're trying to shift the blame, he wants you to be forgiven and free to be able to like have the burden of sin removed and be able to be comfortable in your own skin because you're forgiven and accepted. So is the cross and the mercy of God critical to your soul or are you critical? When the cross is critical, when the mercy of God is critical to us, it will kill a critical spirit in us and raise humility and love and mercy and patience to life in our lives. I'm going to conclude with just some advice and some thoughtful questions from Kevin DeYoung. So just hear these, maybe just prayerfully. You might even want to just close your eyes as I read through these um, bits of advice and then some concluding questions and then we'll sing a closing song and be done. He says, don't assume you know all the facts after hearing one side of the story. Don't assume the divorced person is to blame for the divorce. Don't assume the single mom isn't following Jesus. Don't assume the guy from the mission is less of a man or less of a Christian. Don't assume you'd be a better mom. Don't assume bad kids are the result of bad parents. Don't assume your parents are clueless. Don't assume everyone should drop everything to attend your needs. And don't assume no one will. Don't assume the rich are ungenerous. Don't assume the, the poor are lazy. Don't assume you have interpreted the emotions of the email correctly. Don't assume everyone has forgotten about you. Don't assume everyone else has a charmed life. Don't assume a bad day makes her a bad friend. Don't assume the repentance isn't genuine. Don't assume the forgiveness isn't sincere. Don't assume God can't love them. He says, think of your posts. Think of your conversations with friends. Think of what you talk about with your husband or how you talk about your wife. Think of your emails and texts. Think of the speech pouring out of your heart. Are we doing all we can to guard and advance our neighbor's good name? Or are we ready to believe the worst, eager to pass out failure, and happy to pile on when the pile gets popular? If the mere assertion of wrongdoing can ruin someone's life, if that's the moral universe we want to sustain, one where guilt is presumed and innocence is only declared after it's too late, then you and I are only a whisper away from seeing it all go down the drain. And then a few questions here. Would you like others to remember your failings as long as you remember theirs? Do you like it when people assume the worst about you? 
put the worst possible construct on your motives, never give you the benefit of the doubt? Do you like it when others are quick to speak, quick to anger, and slow to forgive? How does it feel when others speak about you instead of to you? What if everyone else took things personally? Have you ever tried to see things their way? Are people more surprised when you are outraged and offended or when you are tender and compassionate? And then he says, Have mercy on stupid and sinful people. You and I will be one of them soon enough. So thankfully, Jesus loves stupid and sinful people. And he wants us to follow him, receiving his mercy and giving it generously. Let's pray. Oh God, have mercy on us, the sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.